1: Learn all about investing in real estate in Sugarland, Texas, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Sugarland. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre recorded real estate investing classes. Not all of them specific to Sugarland. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message
0: from our sponsors. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is James Orr. And today I'm excited. We've got a special guest. We've got Ryan Chaw, and he's going to talk to us about his unique real estate investing strategy. And I'm super excited to hear about what he's got going on there. So welcome, Ryan. How are you?
1: Hey, thanks, James Orr. Excited to be on the podcast and I'm honored. Thank you.
0: Oh, you're very, very welcome. So tell me about this unique strategy. What's what's going on? Like, what are you uh, what have you been doing and, and how does it work?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like house hacking on steroids. Basically, we'll take a pretty large single family home or duplex and we'll add extra bedrooms to the house and rent out to a local college town. So typically these houses will have five or six bedrooms, uh, maybe seven or eight even, and a five or six bedroom house. And if we charge $600 a month per student, it ends up being $3,600 you know, a seven-bedroom would be 4,200 or maybe even 5,000 for an eight-bedroom house. And so we provide, you know, really good local student housing, uh, all amenities um, really close to the campus. And, uh, you know, we just try to provide really great service and uh, keep our students safe.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, So basically, you're taking the normal house hacking strategy, which is buying a property that you can rent out part of it while you're living in the property is usually how we think about house hacking. And then so you're, you're deciding to go ahead and take a property and then add additional bedrooms if you can, if it makes sense to do that, and then renting those out. And ideally, your niche is really student rentals to find something around a university, around a college town, and actually rent out to those guys. So is that pretty much what you're doing?
1: Exactly. Yeah, mainly college town students, but we're also near hospitals sometimes. And so we have okay. fellowships, residencies, all of that. Uh, typically, uh, we also invest in their kind of low median home pricing type areas. So that actually increases our cash flow. And typically our cash flow is anywhere from 2000 to 3500 a month
0: uh, after all taxes, insurance, and expenses on these okay. houses. And so I mean, I've got so many questions. So um, let me let me first start about how you're acquiring these properties. What are you doing? Are you going in there with typically 20% down? Or are you doing like a 5% down where your owner occupying them? And then you're staying in one of the bedrooms yourself? Like, what are you doing to acquire them? Yeah.
1: So I did a 20, 25% down for the most part. Um, I've, I've done it where I bought like a second home and stayed in it for a bit and then rented it out afterwards. Um, That was more of a 10% down. I kind of had to do it out of necessity because I, I couldn't really um, come up with the full 20% at that time. Um, But then I also take out HELOCs. I might do a cash out refi. And I'm also partnering up with uh, capital partners who are putting in the down payment for me. And then basically I do all the management work. Um, So growing and scaling that way as well.
0: Okay, so you're basically, so some of the stuff you're doing is you're gonna go in there and you're gonna put 20% down or 25% down. And then you don't have to move into the property, assuming you're not moving into a lot of these properties. Is Is this something you started like when you were in school or do you start this after school? Like what'd you do?
1: Yeah, so when I graduated, I grad- I had um I graduated as a farm D, um, okay. from my school in Stockton, California, and I just wanted to get started as soon as possible in real estate because I knew yeah. it, it's the best way to create generational wealth. Yeah. I had a grandpa who really killed it in a real estate, and he also helped cover part of my college tuition and my brothers as well. And so I realized that you know real estate is one of the best ways to build wealth for the generations. And so, you know, I got started right away. I worked um, 14 hour days, 14, 15 hour days. I will work six or seven days a week um, at the retail pharmacy, as well as the hospital pharmacy to just save up as much money as I can. And so I basically started off purchasing one property a year and I kept reinvesting that cash flow. So for the first six, seven years, six years or so, I didn't take on any partners. It was all my own. W2 income as well as cash flow for my properties and equity as well. Um, and then eventually I decided, you know, I could go scale much faster. So I partnered up and this year alone I purchased
0: eight properties. And you're still buying them with your own credit yourself? Are you you're partnering and you're the primarily the credit guy when you kind of do those deals?
1: Yeah, I usually do most of the marketing. Um Actually, I partnered with my uncle. He put up the down payment for the first two houses. But then after that, we ended up doing more of a 50-50 scenario because we were creating a lot of cash flow. You know, we wanted to reinvest it. And plus, you know, he was starting to help
0: out and do a lot of the management piece as well. What are you doing for loans after you fill up your 10 loan spots? I assume you're over 10 at this point. I'm at eight. So oh, okay.
1: I, I purposely did that because I still want to purchase my dream home and my maybe my beach house or whatever. You know, I I want to save at least two just in case, right? Otherwise, you run out of loans. You can't do a conventional loan anymore. You know, you're kind of screwed, right? So what we do now is- is
0: the Sorry, good news go is for owner-occupant properties, the 10 loan limit does not apply. So you could still oh, do actually, conventional financing over 10. The Where you get caught is if you have more than 10, you try to get your next investor property, then you get cut off. You need to go to some type of other you know, non-conventional type financing. Right.
1: I did actually use my owner-occupied one right now. I'm, I'm house hacking this one. But yeah, totally, totally understand there. But yes, what we do is DSCR now. Um, uh, in DSER, you can use the rental income that the property will generate. as long as it covers the debt, the anticipated mortgage payment, monthly mortgage payment, you you will be approved for a DSER loan. It's like a one and a one point
0: one times uh, usually the monthly mortgage. And are you seeing mostly thirty year fixed rate financing on those, or are they going to be some type of adjustable rate mortgage with a balloon of something
1: thirty year fixed? Yeah, I do. Okay, that's year great. Fixed. Um, my last one is 8.125%. So okay. it's definitely, it's higher than the investor uh, conventional loan, but yeah. not by much because investor conventional loans, I think they're reaching high sevens, mid sevens right now, 7.5, yeah. 7.625, you know. Around. Are you
0: using like a local bank or a national bank to do those kind of DSCR? This links? is actually
1: a national lender,
0: yeah. I okay. found them through um, a network that I'm part of called Abundance. Okay. Very cool. So I you said you're managing the properties yourself. And since you're renting the students, are you trying to do like the, the classic, you know, get the parents to co-sign and you're doing like a year long lease, but they're really only there for nine months. Like what are you doing for handling some of those traditional student rental type issues?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I always do a lease. If I'm in the middle of the year, I'll do a lease until July 31st. And then from there, I'll do August to August leases. Um, because a lot of these people who are doing like fellowships and residencies, they're really not taking much summer off anyways. Yeah. Um, plus a lot of grad students, they're doing research during the summer, so they still need the place to stay. Um, with that being said, if they do not need it during the summer, they can always sublet it to another tenant, like a summer school tenant. And that happens just fine. I'm able to even help them out. I tell them, I will I can help you out during summer, although it is your, still your primary responsibility. You know, I'll help you out. And I've haven't really had issues not having like somebody not being able to find a subletter. Like okay. I would say nine times out of 10 they're able to find a subletter. And, um so are you pre-signing signing? I I would say it depends. So the kids have several ways to pay the rent. They could take out student loans, they can take out, you know, they might have financial aid, they might have a job, they probably the most common way is their parents are covering the rent, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have the parents covering the rent, in that case, I will have them co-sign. And what's great about this method is you never have to deal with unpaid rent because what parent is going to just stop paying rent for their kids Lodging, right?
0: That yes, likely, likely. Well, although I've, I've known some crazy parents out there. Maybe you find one that's uh, willing to right. let them As long as go. they have a good relationship. <laughs> okay. okay, so that's awesome. So you're you're not really having the need to do the co-signer if you're getting student loans or financial aid because Correct. you think yeah, if they you're have, that- They
1: demonstrate that the financial aid has a section for room and board, which, you know, is the case in a lot of cases. I've even had somebody who paid the full year, never yeah. stayed at the house, but the financial aid was covering it, so... Okay. Yeah, might as well take it.
0: Are you collecting the entire lease amount up front then, or are you collecting it as they pay out with the student loans? I don't even know how student loans work anymore. Yeah. So it's due on a monthly basis still. Um, okay. Yeah. And this is, does the student loan stuff come out like all in one lump sum, or does it come out in yeah, like Yeah, usually it
1: does. So come out like for the fall semester, there'll be a one lump sum, and then there'll be a lump sum for spring. Usually um, it's around August timeframe or so that they'll get most of the funds okay or, or and like a
0: bit before what's the typical like price of house you're doing with this strategy in your marketplace?
1: Yeah so where I'm investing now I, I invest in California and out of state so I have five in California I have eight of them or nine of them out of state um, one in Alabama eight in Ohio so the price in Alabama was two ten thousand We're renting that out for uh, 4200 ish a little bit more I think 4250 okay uh, per month. And then for Ohio, I will buy, the first one we bought was 210000 and we rented that out for $3,750 uh, $3, $3, per month. So okay. the cash flow on that was around 2300 2500 a month. And the cash flow on the Alabama one is around, um, I think it's a little bit over 3000
0: a month or so. Okay. And when you're qualifying for the loans, is the lender using the student, like, like uh, the student rental income, or are they using more of a traditional rental income in order to qualify for the loan?
1: Uh, Yeah, so that's a very good question. So if you do a DSCR type loan um, to get qualified, they will estimate what the market rent is. They're not going to assume that you're going to rent by the room. Um, And sometimes, like if you do a refinance through a DSCR, they prefer to have a traditional lease. So you would have to have everyone sign on like one lease. But for conventional, they're actually okay doing a refi and taking 75% of your rental income, usually 75, sometimes 100% if you actually reported on your tax returns. And as long as the conventional lenders, usually this is in most cases, as long as they see one year leases, um, they will still take that rental income. Um, And
0: they might take off 25% of it at most, but they'll still use it. For sure. Okay, that's super interesting. Have you ever had cuz I assume you do some like teaching of this strategy to some of your kind of like students and their partners to kind of help people do this. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you do you have people ever utilize like a variation of like a cross between the nomad real estate investing strategy of buying a property, moving in, living there for a year and mm-hmm. then after the year converting that to a rental and kind of repeating sequentially in order to acquire their rental properties that way. And of course the benefit is the, you know, the 5% down owner occupant loan and, you know, uh the better interest rates than you would get if you're doing like these DSCR and or investor type loans. Are you? Do you have any students who are doing like the move into the property, live there for a year, maybe even while they're in school, get roommates and yeah. then convert that one and keep it as a student rental to kind of maximize it?
1: Yeah, definitely. I actually had three students this year, at least that have done that strategy. They lived in it for a bit um, or maybe, you know, a year. For at least a couple months, right, and then yeah. they they rented out to housemates. And yep. then that's how they got started, essentially. Yeah. Um, and they're able to also put a lower down payment, potentially. You do have to be careful with those regulations, though. Um, <clears throat> generally, you do have to stay in it for a year, right? Yep. Unless you have a really good reason not to, like you lost your job or you're searching sure. jobs, or maybe you had a, a, your mom you had to take care of who's sick, whatever, right? But um, generally speaking, yeah, if you do do a house hacking strategy, you want to stay in it for a year. And I'm actually doing that myself. Right now, um, this house that I'm living in, I have um four other roommates or four other housemates, yeah. um, and so our my rental income on this one is thirty six fifty per month, and my mortgage payment is twenty three hundred, and I'm in Sacramento, so so
0: thirty six fifty. So you're getting like nine hundred and ten dollars on average per roommate, essentially, in order to have someone living in that property. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. So nine sixty five for the largest room, um, eight fifty, eight seventy. Um
0: and then 830. And is this, like this and I assume you're are you including utilities in your rents, or are you like charging them utilities as well pro rata?
1: Yeah, it's separate. Yeah, it's okay. actually not included. Um, they will divide it by however many tenants there are at the house. Um, but I include I will cover the vacant rooms. So if there is a vacancy, I will cover the utilities for that one room. Um, but like let's say there's five people at the house, you know, the bill is I don't know, 400 or something like that. Each person would pay maybe 80 bucks a month for utilities.
0: Okay. Have you had any issues with filling a vacancy like mid-semester or anything like that? Or like if you don't fill it before the start of a school semester, it's a little harder to fill or anything like that?
1: That's actually a great question as well. So a lot of people worry about that, but that's actually not the case uh, because there's always people coming into the college. In mm-hmm. fact, um, around now, September, September, october and november you'll actually see a lot of international students coming in because they just had mm. their visas approved um okay. and visas they get approved anywhere from you know during the summer all the way until like december basically so you have all these students who are coming in finally after their visas is approved and you know getting started in person learning right away but you know before that they had to get all that situated so you'll you'll see a lot of people coming in like that Also, if you're close by a hospital, it really doesn't matter what the timing is. Um, But with that being said, there are going to be bigger, like a big wave of students that will apply in April, May, and July. Um, And then for spring semester, you'll get a wave around, you know, November, December timeframe. So so there's always people applying, you know, there's even summer school, right? They'll apply around March or so. Um, so you'll always get these kind of waves throughout. So don't don't too, worry too much about the timing. <laughs> I actually purchased in the last year, I purchased pretty much a property every other month or so. Okay. Um, yeah, it was just throughout and I, we still filled them all, all the rooms. Yeah, okay. part of it is judging demand though too. You have to make sure you you figure out your market demand. And there's a lot of techniques to do that for sure.
0: Yeah, are you doing your own property management?
1: Yeah, actually, I do. I I do have this general contractor um, with my business partner. um, And he he does really great work. He's very reliable. And as long as I have, you know, we have that boots on the ground that we can count on that understands that we're out of state, you know, so he might have to go the extra mile to make things happen. You know that that once you have that one really good team
0: player, um, you're you're set. Okay, yeah are you doing like house rules and are, are you like establishing those? Or are you letting them kind of like rule themselves like Lord of flies type of stuff, or, or like, what, what are you doing there for like, uh, you know, managing the, the house while you're away?
1: Yeah. I mean, whoever, whoever wins right now. Um, yeah. So basically I send out this kind of like a PDF um, PowerPoint basically that they all kind of can go through and it lists out all the house rules. What's the Wi-Fi? what's trash day, all of that type of stuff. Right. Okay. Or what do you do if you're locked out? Um, what's the lockbox box code? Um, and yeah, basically they get that right when they, right before they move in.
0: Okay. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing all that stuff there and they're able to pretty much self-manage. Are, are you, how, how concerned or what do you do about like, Putting a new person into a house of four other strangers are are you concerned about that? Or are you, how are you addressing? No, not too much. Um, okay,
1: for them, they're okay. It's this is the reason why it's a good deal for them, right? Okay. The dormitories they'll charge like a thousand nine hundred dollars or or twelve hundred dollars for a room, and you'll be staying with somebody else. You'll be like bunking with someone, essentially, yes. right? Um, so you're gonna have to wake up to their seven a.m. alarm, even though you wanted to sleep in whatever on the weekend or yeah whatever, right? And and you also have to pay for a meal plan on top of that. And so for a lot of students that are trying to save money and parents, right, they'd rather pay more like $600, $700, get their own private room, no bunk mate, right? Yep. And have all of this space and um, be able to choose their own meals, right? Rather than having to select a meal plan. Um, plus they have a full on kitchen, they have a backyard, they have parking that you don't have to pay for. Um, They don't have to climb like three flights of stairs to get to their dorm room, right? So it just it's very convenient for a lot of people. And it saves a ton of money, you're paying half the price for a lot more privacy. Yeah. Um, And so that's just, you know, a lot better. When I was in the dorms, I shared um, the bathroom, the communal bathroom was with 30 other students. Yeah. So it definitely is an upgrade from that
0: yeah so is, are do you keep a certain ratio of bed, to baths? are you doing like hey no more than you know one like two bedrooms per bathroom are you trying to keep a ratio of that when you're buying yeah, the house so the
1: max number of bathroom uh, bedrooms that can go to a bathroom is three to one typically. okay um i know i mean i have my my dad for example he had like six other siblings or sorry five other siblings and um basically they had to all share one bathroom yeah. along with the parents so it was uh it was pretty messy um but in 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 most cases people are willing to share with just like two other people they just yeah. have to coordinate the shower schedules and honestly most of them aren't home they're usually in class or in lab or studying at the library right right and so they're only using the the restroom to shower and sleep essentially
0: Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I know in, and I'm sure this varies market to market. And I'm sure you do some research on this in my particular market where I happen to live, we have a occupancy law. It's called the, uh, yeah. two, it's called the two plus one rule. Um, and so you can only have two people plus one additional person, the uh, two unrelated. So two yeah. plus one unrelated person living in a particular property. Are you like checking that as you go and do it? Or is, is student housing like exempt from that rule? Or what are you doing about that?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, that's a very good question. You have to, we always have to bring that up because in certain markets they'll have these ordinances and they'll actually have cases where you know a student potentially was kicked out because the occupancy limit was mm-hmm. breached. So it's really important to be aware of the laws in your market. But yeah. with that being said there are exceptions you can have. So there's something called like a change of use permit where you can change the use of your house from maybe a single family home to a boarding house or a rooming house. There's also a variance, uh, zoning variance. So you could pursue that and get yours um, basically as a special exception since we're so close to the school, you know, and we're bringing in professional students. Can we go ahead and do this? So um, the other thing to keep in mind is that limit is per unit. So if you have like a duplex, you can still have, let's say there's three unrelated per unit, then that's six, If there's yeah. four unrelated, that's eight. And sometimes even, for example, University of Alabama, I know if you invest near there, they have this kind of zoning directly around the school that has up to five unrelated and then yeah. past that um, zone, basically, I think it's four unrelated or something like that. Um, But yeah, you have to make sure you're keeping up with the zoning laws. But what I would do is contact a local real estate attorney and say, hey, this is what I want to do. Occupancy limits, you know, how, you know, what can we do about this, right? Because we're trying to offer, you know, really good student housing. These are professional students, you know, Um, what's the difference between this versus somebody who has like an, I don't know, extended family, maybe they adopt like four kids, right? Right. It's honestly, I think these laws are discriminatory. (laughs) Like, for example, if you adopted four kids, they're not related. I mean, by blood. Right. Wouldn't that be
0: considered uh, against the law? Right. In in our particular market, it's actually if they're if they're adopted by you, they count as being part of your family. But I'm sure everyone is a little bit different. You got to go actually read the regulations. But in my particular market, that's how it works. Sure. Polygamy? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know (laughs) about that one. I've not seen many of those here. (laughs) In my
1: opinion, it's kind of inherently discriminatory. But I mean, also you have to make sure you're in compliance with the law. So you have to talk to a real estate attorney who's an expert in that. And that's kind of their job to kind of make sure you're doing it correctly.
0: Have you done this strategy outside like a local university or a local hospital sort of area? Like, have, have you tried this just in a random spot?
1: I wouldn't say, no, 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 I wouldn't say that because uh, I definitely, we're, we're very focused on providing really good student housing, right? Okay. Student housing provider. So we always want to be in a market that has a lot of like hospital positions or a really good college. Usually it's a top college. If you're thinking about like Ivy League colleges, maybe like John Hopkins, or Princeton or whatever, right? We don't have to be Ivy League, but we're still in the top, like 200, 300 colleges usually.
0: Yeah. Have you done traditional rentals before? Or has this been your strategy since day one?
1: It's pretty much been my strategy since day one. My grandpa did do traditional rentals. He had a set of um, six flats in San Francisco. And so he, um, yeah, he rented out to families. He had so much trouble with that house. like a, a hoarder tenant, a tenant who would stomp on his, like the ceiling above him at like 3 a.m. <laughs> so like they're yeah. having like these parties at like 2 a.m. or something like that. So they're dancing at 2 a.m. So yeah, he had a lot of difficulty with that. The thing I, I like about students is, especially high quality students, like juniors, seniors, grad students, they're really focused. Like they they want to get that doctorate. They want yeah. to get that MBA, JD, MD, etc, engineering degree, whatever. So they're highly focused on their studies. And they're going to um, generally take care of the house too. I mean, they don't want to live in a pigsty, most of them. Um, yeah. So they're going to be, you know, some of the best tenants you will ever have, in my opinion, some people think that, oh, it's a frat party or something like that. But honestly, yeah. I've had way better experiences with these tenants, than I, you know, my colleagues have my grandpa's had, you know, my um my relatives whatever right
0: yeah and are you doing some I, i'm assuming you're doing like little things to cater to this group like you know keypad locks to let them in instead mm-hmm. of having to do separate keys and you can yeah. remove one and like all that stuff that i'm sure you're you're kind of really focusing in on to cater to this group of, of students. Oh yeah you-
1: and all the amenities we provide to cater towards that we have like a ring doorbell system and they have access to it so they can see when their packages are delivered. Um, So that provides the safety. We have floodlights, we have study desks everywhere. Um, We have a, you know, study room, potentially. Um, So yeah, it's basically very, very
0: student friendly. Um, And and you're really good students as well. You're furnishing the house to kind of get it ready for all this stuff. So you have like Mm -hmm. the the central living room has got a TV and a couch and like furniture in there and, and study desks. I'm sure you just, just talked about as well. So you're doing a little bit of furnishing. What does what it typically cost to furnish a student rental like this?
1: Oh yeah. That's a great question. So it depends on what your budget is. You can yeah. furnish a whole house for less than $3,000 or less than 2000. Even if okay. you go to like, let's say Facebook marketplace, you can find um, kind of cheaper mattresses around $300 per full size mattress. So if you get like six adults, that's maybe like 1800. And then the rest of it you get on Facebook marketplace, that would be 2500, for example, okay. um, for a six bedroom place. Uh, but it's it's kind of up to you if you want to do what I do. And I, I kind of invest in pretty really good furniture. I mean, it's it's cost effective, but it's also really good. Yeah. I, I go to Amazon, Walmart, and Target, and Home Depot. Those are kind of like my go to places and yeah. places as well. And then for kitchenware, you can actually save a lot of money on that. You don't need a fancy kitchenware set. You can just go to the Dollar Tree or a 99 cent store and all the utensils will be like a dollar, right? Or okay. plates and cups will be a dollar, but it's still really good quality. Like I use it all the time, you know, the, yeah. my house.
0: So like the the amount of furnishing you're doing you're providing like a bed a, like a a clothes dresser or something mm-hmm. like that in their rooms the couch in the living room i'm sure are you doing a tv no actually you- you not I providing do, TV I do at all? a tv? tv, yes.
1: That's up to them if they want to bring in their own tv. I I want to encourage studying, right? I want this okay. to be a very good quiet You are a landlord that
0: wants people. them to graduate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, no. That's pretty no bear pong, you know. Okay. To, yeah. But I mean it's up to them if they want to bring in the tv and do that, that's fine as well. Um like like I said, like I do keep a pretty good security deposit as well, so um if, you know, something breaks and it's the student's fault, then yes, we could keep the security deposit. But in my seven and a half years of doing this, the probably the biggest expense I've ever had to replace was like a broken window. And the tenant had to, you know, they covered all of that, right?
0: So are you doing, you're doing like one month's rent of security deposit or you're doing larger than that? Uh, One month
1: rent for Ohio and Alabama and one and a half in California. Because if you go past the
0: limit, the state limit, you yeah. have to pay interest on it. So those are okay. the same limits. <laughs> and so so you're doing the maximum whatever you can in that particular marketplace um, after talking to the local attorney. Yeah, I got to look up California, but um, it's one and a, it was one and a half last time I checked. That's so when you time. help your students do this, are, are they doing it in their local marketplace? Or are you just saying, hey, look, these are the five markets we've determined are really good for doing this. And I don't care where you live. You can go invest in these markets. They're better for this particular model than other places. So this model works anywhere.
1: Um, okay. I mean, I'm in California. I have five rentals in California. I've probably made at least like I've you know, every every house I've had has gone up at least a hundred thousand. So I've yeah. made at least a five hundred k just from the appreciation over sure. the seven years I've been doing this. And you know, that's because it's California, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> so it depends on what your goals are. If you're really going for the cash flow, you know, maybe California is not the best. You might be able to get like fifteen hundred. Actually, I did get somebody recently, um, last month, who got like two thousand. Two hundred or something, but it was a six hundred thousand dollar property, right? So you're not going to have as great of a return on it, um, but still, with that being said, you can still cash flow a thousand to fifteen hundred per month on uh, on the uh, on the right properties in California, even during this time. Um, as far as our state, you know, there's definitely a lot more opportunity, at least you know, being in California, right? So I've I've had a lot of people who were in the Bay Area. I think I have at least four or five. Well, yeah, over five, actually over five clients who live in the Bay, but then they rented or, you know, they bought out of state um, because they wanted that cash flow. But then again, I've also had a lot of people who purchase in-state San Jose, Riverside, uh, UC San Bernardino, um, Stockton, uh, Sacramento, uh, Elk Grove. So, you know, it works everywhere. essentially, just
0: like more
1: appreciation or cash flow.
0: Totally. No, that t- that totally makes a lot of sense to me. Hey, um, are you like really comfortable with your deal analysis? Like uh, if I, if I really drill into some of the questions about how you analyze deals and ask you some questions about stuff, how comfortable are you with it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So when you do your deal analysis, what are you using for your vacancy number?
1: 5% or so.
0: Okay. The first you're using- year,
1: there's there's going to be a little bit of vacancy potentially there, there could be like, sometimes I get it filled within two weeks, but sometimes it could be a month might be a month and a half. Right. And that's pretty typical. So I'll put 5%,
0: but I have back to back leases. Okay. So you're doing 5% for your vacancy number. What are you, what are you setting aside for maintenance on the property? And what do you include in
1: maintenance? 1% of the total property price. So let's say it's like a $500,000 house. I'll set aside $5,000 a year or 300,000. I'll set aside 3000 a year. Uh, That's for, I mean, there's appliances that break down all the time um, maybe a toilet, maybe some plumbing issues. Um, you know, rear every once in a while you have like a sewage line break or yep. replace a roof or replace a an HVAC. And that's why I say it's really important. You make at least like $1,500 per month in cash flow on each property, because let's say you're only making a hundred or let's say you're making $200 in cash flow, yep. You're only making like 2,400 a year. If you get a new roof, that's $15,000. That's like, I don't know, that's like 13, 15 <laughs> years of your cash flow just gone, right? That's right. It's so gone. like, you have to at minimum be making like 1500 a month. And, yeah. most, you know, most traditional rentals, you can't do that. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't do that, it's it's not really worth pursuing. Because I mean, that's, you know, fifteen hundred a month. It'll be only ten months worth of cash flow, but then you're good for the next thirty years for that yeah. room, right? It's a totally different picture. So, um very important, you know, not to leave half your money on the table. That's why I say renting by the room is the future, man. Co living, <laughs> um, it's, it's saving people a lot of money, you yeah. know, or so they can save their down payment for the actual house they buy eventually um and it's also a win-win situation because for you you have enough cash flow to support the capital expenditures like your roof your HVAC the sewage line now with that being said you definitely want to do inspections like during the the home inspection period because you want to catch all those things right away i always do a sewage lateral line inspection pretty much no matter what yep. unless it's like you know, two thousands or something like that, or, or newer. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, you want to catch all that stuff so you can negotiate with the seller and at least the seller can pay for half of it. And I've had um, a full roof paid for, I've had two full roofs paid for actually. And I've had um, half the HVAC
0: paid for, uh, but I've also had to replace roofs and HVACs. Yeah. So when, so let me dig into your maintenance a little bit. So you've you've included some things in here that I would normally consider like more of a capital expense on a property, but it seems like you named those as part of your maintenance. Do you have a separate capital expense allotment? Yeah, that you're using? I usually assume CapEx to
1: be I set aside like ten thousand or so, generally speaking. Ten thousand per what period? Uh, I just at the beginning, just at the beginning. Okay, and, I, and then I also. Set aside, like I said, three thousand a year that will go towards landscaping, appliances, general maintenance, etc. And but that's, that's your that's your maintenance number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that's like you know, what you get from taking all the expenses that I've had over like five years or, well, it's been seven years now, but I did an average over five years and I just divided and set, and it turned out to be around 3000 per house ish. Okay. Um, Yeah.
0: And are you like, how often are you doing paint and carpet? How many turns do you typically get out of paint and carpet with a student rental?
1: Oh yeah. So at the beginning I might replace um, some of the carpet if it's really messy, uh, what's nice is uh, LVP, right, is yeah. um, 3 to $4 per square foot. That's actually really, really, really cheap. Yeah. Um, I mean, a bedroom will be maybe 120 square foot. That's maybe 360 for materials. You know, your guy charges labor. It might be, I don't know, 600 700 I mean, it should be, but it depends on who you use, obviously. If you have yeah. somebody with a license, they might want to charge more.
0: Um, but you can have a handyman replace flooring. Okay. And so, so now going back to the deal analysis part, so we kind of got a better understanding of maintenance and CapEx and how you break that down. Mm -hmm. So as far as um, your personal expenses as being the owner of the property, I I understand long-term rentals really, really well. I don't do any student rentals. What other expenses do you have on the property that you don't typically have on other rentals? Are there any utilities you're paying? Like what, like what is considered an additional expense that you don't normally have on like these long-term rentals?
1: You know it's it's very similar um the utility bills will be higher but it's actually it's divided among the tenants right so you're still not paying it um as far as maintenance you do have to counsel them to do certain things that maybe somebody who has lived at a house for a long time might know Um, but that being said even traditional long-term rentals renters renters, they don't know things you know you would think they would know but anyways um (laughs) There's certain maintenance things like um, any type of grease, like you're frying a bacon or whatever. You want to solidify it and pour. it. Well, you pour it into a fat trapper, and then when it solidifies, you pour you put it in the trash can. Otherwise, if you pour it down your kitchen sink, that thing is gonna clog, right? Yep. Same thing for hair in showers. That's a happens all the time, right? Got <laughs> to get a hair catcher. Um, I also have a kitchen sink hair catcher as well um, that I purchased that they can you know clear out when the hair yeah. gets. Uh, high. But, you know, if they don't do that, I would say six to months in, you'll probably have some sort of oh, the the showers backing up. What do I do? Kind of call, right? So you have to train them how to do these things. And it's all part of kind of like the move
0: in instruction slash house rules. Are they mowing the lawn at your properties? or Are you doing that as a service friend?
1: No, we do it as I do it as a service. So I pay for landscaping. I think the landlord generally should pay for landscaping. But I did have a group of students who are like, oh, can we save money and rent if we maintain the yard? Yeah, I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So we knocked off $20 per student or $15 per student. And then they maintained the look the yard for us. So we didn't. Okay
0: and so they're doing lawn mowing is there or you're doing lawn mowing most in most cases except for that one kind of road case yeah, where they're for doing that it. one exception in like seven years yeah what's what's your lawn mowing usually run you
1: uh 60 to 90 a month um a month? okay yeah if it's like more complicated you know really fancy like trees everywhere and all that it might be more yeah. like like 110 or 100 yeah
0: and what are you doing for like snow removal? I'm sure Alabama probably doesn't get much snow. I don't know yeah. where you are in California. They get yeah, snow, but Ohio you do, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely they're not. Uh, so I do provide a snow shovel, you know, for okay.
0: uh, projects. But the um, shovel or you actually provide snow removal? Uh, Shovel and
1: snow removal. So it depends. Like there's a huge blizzard, right? Obviously, I don't want the kids going out and shoveling snow. I'll tell you yeah. that, you know, but um, if it's, you know, Like snow, they can kind of help snow, you know, remove the snow from at least the front of the house. Um, But with that being said, like if there's a blizzard and it's really bad, um,
0: we'll get a snow removal guy out there. Okay. (laughs) And so you're manually, you're kind of manually managing all these things remotely? Like, Mm -hmm. yes, but
1: I do also have VAs and very soon I'm going to have an
0: executive assistant.
1: Um, and we created SLPs, a scope of work for them and everything nice. already. So they're going to be taking on that project um, sometime next month or so. Um, just because it's out of state and everything, sure. I'm like, I, you know, it's nice
0: to kind of offload some of those um, projects to yeah. other
1: people.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's really cool. So based on like the, the numbers you've gotten there when you run your analysis, are you doing like a cash on cash analysis for your properties? Like, are you determining the cash cash number? Would well, you know Damn. what your cash on cash typically runs for these for you and your students in general? Yeah. I don't need to know yours specifically. Right.
1: So a lot of times it'll be um above 20%. So like, okay. let's say, you know, maybe on the low end, 20%. But on the high end, we've hit like 50% cash on cash returns. I know it sounds like is that real? You know, kind of raises red flags, but you know, yeah, we, we've, we've made that in some of our properties.
0: Yeah. And when you do your calculation, I'm assuming you are taking into account vacancy and the maintenance numbers that we talked about. And I assume the CapEx numbers you're talking about. Yeah. You um, almost have to take into account all of that. And utilities and stuff like that for those. So yeah Mm -hmm. okay good so so it sounds like there's some some pretty good returns to be made here um and at those rates i mean you know paying off the property is is can be accelerated if you decide that's your strategy if you want to go and reinvest things and pay down your loans or you want to acquire additional units in parallel i guess you could do that too you save it for down payments and yeah exactly i actually paid down my
1: very first property uh and then sold it for four hundred thirty-seven thousand to
0: buy seven other properties so you re-leveraged, you basically went in, you bought properties, let it appreciate because we were in a very bull market, you know, with the market yeah, going up exactly. last 10 years or so. It was my first house too. So seven years ago. So okay. I,
1: you know, significant amount of equity on that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then you went and sold it. And then um, did you 1031 or did you just kind of take the money, pay the taxes on it and then go out and redo it again?
1: Yeah, you know, I would recommend 1031 if you can, um, but it did require reinvested all of it. And I wanted cash available because we know, you know, the economy, no one knows where the economy is going, sure. but it's good to have cash on hand. So I, I yeah. wanted that cash. Um, so I was like, okay, let's just do this instead.
0: Yeah. Are you a big reserve guy? Like, do you think a lot about reserves when you do your oh, yeah. property stuff? Okay. Oh, yeah. So, I always
1: a hundred thousand in reserves I, I, where I'm at right now, at least a hundred thousand. Um, otherwise it's like, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff go down in houses right after yeah. Yeah. And a half years. Um, when you, I I guess like at the beginning, if you have like four properties, up to four properties, you know, you could probably get away with like 25, 30,000 in reserves or so. Um, unless you want to put everything on a credit card and and there are business credit cards, by the way, that'll do 0% for a year if you're worried. And there's also HELOCs as well, um, which you don't have to take out until you use it. Um, but so I have all that. Um, but then when you get like, when you really scale, it's really important to keep a lot of capital in your pocket, just because there's just things that come up. Yep. Um, and I, I would say, when you hit ten properties, I would recommend having a good eighty to hundred thousand, kind of just as cash. So or, you or think maybe of, as a HELOC, maybe as a HELOC, yeah.
0: So you think of it in terms of a fixed dollar amount, and less so in terms of like the number of months of the actual expenses you have on all of your rental properties combined. Like uh, you know, like six months of reserves as an example versus your know, twenty five thousand dollars in your account. You'd like to think of it in the dollar amount.
1: Yeah, I usually do. Okay. Um, I think about what I might have to eventually replace on each property as well. Sure. Right, and so yeah. all of that kind of goes into deciding how much should we keep in reserves.
0: Okay, so you're thinking you're merging reserves with your capex your capex account.
1: Yeah, yeah. So okay. a couple a couple of reasons too, like you know when. And we've seen this recently, right? Banks are, um, what do you call, um, resolvent? What do you call their insolvent? Insolvent, yeah. Yeah, that's the word. Silicon Valley Um, Valley banks every time. Right, exactly. And that's just how the banking system works, right? If everyone wants their money, they don't have it, right? Sure. That that literally is like the definition of modern day banking. So, you know, what happened in 2008 is all these people who took out HELOCs and all that, all those banks started demanding, you know, all that money back. Right, and so one thing we're doing is is pulling on some HELOCs, and we're okay paying some of the interest on that, sure. um, just for the um, the peace of mind to have that yeah. liquidity, right? Because it's if you pull like... it out and you put it in another bank, now they can't close the account. But if you if you um, paid off that HELOC or you don't use that HELOC, they can just decide to close that account. Totally, uh, it's actually written in the HELOC contract in most cases too. So yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, if totally. you're a real estate investor, keep that in mind, especially during these times. Good. Well, I'm glad you're doing the reserves. I'm glad you're teaching the reserves saying, let me ask you a kind of like a follow-up question about reserves. Then are you taking into account your reserves as a drag on your cash on cash return on investment? Are you setting aside like saying, hey, I'm acquiring this property? I know I need to have six months of reserve. So my total amount invested is my down payment plus my closing costs, plus, you know, my rent ready costs in order to get all the stuff ready to do it. Plus now I know that I've got six months reserves. So I'm taking that into account when I do my analysis.
1: Um, no, I'm not including then the cash on cash return if that's what you're yeah. asking. Cause I'm not dividing by a hundred thousand in reserves. I'm dividing by the down payment plus the closing costs, plus the renovation costs.
0: Yeah. And and I guess when you have a hundred thousand that you're spreading out across 10 properties, you probably wouldn't allocate the full hundred thousand to a new purchase anyway. But I was thinking if you do that, like say, hey, you know, in order to acquire this new property, the lender is going to require I have six months worth of reserves for this particular new property that I'm doing. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say, hey, look, you know, I'm setting aside the six months of money. I need this money in order to make the investment. So in order to calculate my true. Cash on cash return on investment. I really do need to take into account that I got this six months worth of reserves drag, right. yeah, and I can sure. I can count that these six months of reserves is in whatever it is, you know, um, you know your your savings yeah. account or your yeah, CD yeah. or or the stock market, even if you're yeah. if you're willing to keep that kind of like there, and you can count that return as part of your overall return. But you're not you're when you're saying you're doing your cash on cash number to twenty percent or whatever the really rough number we think you can do for you know yeah. it's a range obviously, but you're not taking that into account there, right? Right, right. Not the
1: reserves. Uh, okay. But what's cool about reserves is like when you're getting approved and everything, you could still use like your 401k. They usually can only use like 50% of it though. Um, And then for stocks, they might do 100% or they might do 75%. It yeah. really depends on what lender you use. But keep in mind, you can also use your retirement funds as quote unquote, you know, those
0: six months reserves. Right. A lot yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense to me. All right, cool. You know, I asked you this question. I don't know if I got a I I was thinking about it again. I made a list of some questions. So yeah. when we talked about the turns for paint and carpet, how often are you doing paint and carpet in uh, in these kind of student rentals?
1: Yeah, it depends on what area you're in. I've definitely invested in rougher areas. So, you know, sometimes you get uh, tenants that didn't take care of the property. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might have to do a whole house painting, but it really depends on what neighborhood, man. I mean, there's something called crimegrade.org um you can look on there it's i would say it's pretty accurate for reporting you know what areas have a higher crime versus others potentially yeah. um and then if you invest in more like yellow or green areas you'll have houses that are probably more well kept together because mm-hmm. it's just you know everyone's high income there they're keeping you know, they're paying money to repair their properties as they go along. Yeah. Um, but you yeah, have I've also bought ones where we've had to, you know, do a whole house, you know, like new flooring, new painting for every single room. So
0: yeah, and so like, how frequently though is it like every three years? I mean, I realize there's a range, but is it like on the low end, you should be able to get two years at a minimum, even if it's in a rough neighborhood, and then in the really nice ones, you may be able to do it for five years or six oh, years. Oh, I or- see what you're saying. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, ever since we've replaced with the LVP, that that's a very good um, product, so we haven't had to replace it a second time over okay. the, like eight years, seven and a half to eight years. I've been doing it uh, as far as painting. We might do touch-up painting. Um, mm-hmm. It's great, like if you can keep the paint can, right? And sometimes the previous owner does keep the paint can yep. uh, because you don't want to try to match the paint, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, that, that's mainly like touch-up stuff. So, okay, yeah,
0: you great. know, I don't know if I Maybe asked you about this. Do you do you have yeah. any parking issues, or do you like issue parking yeah, spots? That's a
1: good point. Yeah. So one thing I don't do is invest in HOA neighborhoods because HOA is another level of government. Um, they could say like literally. We don't allow renters anymore. And they could okay. be like that, you know, because it's yep. they're they're fast with their decisions, and it's mm-hmm. not like the city where they have to go through this whole approval process, right? Um, so I never invest in their HOA because you know they could limit parking spaces, all that type of stuff as well. And so it's really important for me to make sure when I purchase a property that there's enough um like street parking available or or maybe there's a large pavement or garage that I can park a lot of cars at uh, okay but I always assess that it's very important to look at that and usually I try to have enough parking for five cars at least okay um, But with that being said I'm so close to the school that um, I would say half the students will either bike or walk or take a shuttle and okay. oh that's another good point um, if you're nearby a shuttle stop that's a huge
0: um, benefit as well for okay if you can buy have, if you can buy in there there how are you dealing with two related issues in my mind at least how are you dealing with mixed gender in the houses like is it all boys all girls are you you don't really care they have to they're adults they need to take care of themselves yeah. and then the second follow-up question related to that is how do you deal with boyfriends girlfriends staying over at the properties
1: oh that's a great one uh the default is co-ed the default will always be co-ed because you're, you know, it's 50-50 essentially for, yeah. for females and males. Um, but with that being said, there's a lot of different cultures out there. Um, for example, like Indian culture, the girls aren't supposed to be living with their guys until they're married. That's mm-hmm. just culture for all yeah. things, right? It's a cultural restriction. So um for those. You know, tenants they'll say like we prefer to stay with other females, and so it's really important you're not like being discriminatory. So like right. in your ad, you cannot say like females only at this household, right? Right. That's discriminatory, yeah. but you can say like, hey, we have a group of girls that want to stay with other girls. You know, can we match them up? And so I'll have like one house that's like, I'll put all the females at at the house because they all want to stay at an all-female house, right? And obviously we work it out together with them and everything. And then I'll have a co-ed house. I'll have houses that are all guys. Well, I just try to figure out how to best match them up because I kind of of have a little bit of a question there, you know, like, what kind of roommate do you want to stay with? Do you prefer co-ed, yeah. all females, whatever? And then I'll, I'll match them up accordingly. It's kind of like how colleges will do that, like freshman year. Um, You know, what are your what, – what qualities in a roommate are you looking for, right? Yeah.
0: So, and so are you, you're doing that level of, like, almost selection and – Pre screening. Yeah, for yeah. it's tenants. on my uh,
1: Google form. I have an intake form. Um, okay.
0: You know, what year of
1: you, what, what <laughs> are your preferences? What room are you preferring? A larger one, a smaller one, all of that type of stuff. Oh, Move in date, of course. Um, so all of that information is on the Google form that I send out. Okay.
0: Are there any questions I didn't ask that like you normally get that are like, hey, uh, hey I'm, I'm going to do this thing, but what about this thing? You know, like, did I miss any crazy ones?
1: Um, I would say. No, I mean, I think you you are very comprehensive, for sure. Um, I would say the keys to success in this industry yeah. is definitely, I think in general, though, too, is there's, I think there's always three elements to uh, real estate. Uh, the mm-hmm. first one is the numbers, like getting the math right, getting the deal correct, uh, making sure you have your ROI and all of that. The second one is um, teams. So making sure you really establish a really good team in whatever market that you're investing in, right? Um, and then the last one is, oh shoot, I'm, I'm trying to remember what. Last, <laughs> That's what, all you um, need.
0: Yeah, I mean, you I need I your numbers in your, your team, time. then you're good. Right, 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 right.
1: Um, but oh yeah, capital. That's the last. Yeah. So okay. those are the three barriers. Um, capital really important. So. If you look at these big names like Grant Cardone, for example, yeah. or Brandon Turner from Baker Pockets, they're like they're raising tons of money from other people. They're using other people's money, sure. not using their own, right? Um, that's how they scale. That's how you scale. You have to have a source of continued capital, whether it be your W two, whether you have capital partners, whether you use creative financing by tapping into equity on your house. You have to solve the capital barrier because number one thing people say when they buy ask to buy a house they say, oh, I don't have enough money. Well, you have to figure out how to get that money. Then you have to bag, borrow, steal, and no, that's the phrase, right? You right. have to you have to solve the capital problem. The second one is the the uh, team problem, which is um, you you got to have people you can rely on. And then the last one, like I said, was the the deal the deal problem, like making sure you the deal. Uh, you know, you have to know the numbers. You have to know the math. You have to um, be able to anticipate when you have to, um, you know, potentially replace something down the road anticipate potential uh, problems on the house down the road based off of what you're seeing from the inspection like red flags and all of that
0: yeah totally that's great so when you like help your students out like what are you what are you doing is it is the it standard thing you're doing do you have like a lot of variation is is it like coaching is it just information like what are you how are you assisting your students
1: mm-hmm. yeah so for those who are interested in student housing or creating a student housing business for themselves um, I provide a six month program. It's one-on-one coaching uh, through Zoom, just like this. Uh, and it's 30 minutes to an hour calls usually every other month or every other week, sorry. Um, and at the beginning, we kind of meet weekly as well. And we just go A through Z, um, market demand or market analysis, demand, uh, deal analysis, uh, renovations and negotiations, uh, marketing, and then how to create like a management system for it as well. Um, and yeah, all of that all rolled into kind of like a six month program. And, um, I've had clients, I've had over 50 clients. I want to say we've been at least 20 different States already, um, all across the U S and you know, you can invest locally. I have, I would say at least 75% of my students invest locally. Um, and so I've had like, at least, I, I think I had like 12 clients in California you know, I've had clients all over the U.S. for sure. So okay, it works awesome. in every market.
0: Well, that's really cool. So, uh, yeah, I definitely appreciate you coming on. Is there any last minute thing you want to do? I'll definitely put the link. You you have something for uh, people that are interested in learning more about this. I'll put that link in there. Did you want to put out a, a web address or a phone number on the oh, audio yeah, as yeah, well? For sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: So my uh, the best way to reach me if you're interested in student housing, um, I provide this free pdf guide that kind of gets you started on it and you know shows you it compared to other methods um that's at com backslash guide so that's com slash guide and newbie is spelled n-e-w-b-i-e And you'll also get uh, if you sign up for that PDF, uh, you'll get regular emails from me about all the mistakes I've made, some of the things I'm doing currently, some of the strategies I found work really, really well. Um, And yeah, it's just free information.
0: That's awesome. I do appreciate Ryan. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge about this uh, student housing stuff. I think this is a, a great strategy for those that definitely are having some challenges doing cash flow in their, in their marketplace with home prices having gone up really rapidly in the last decade or so. And interest rates are up a lot in the last year and a half and rents are up, but not quite enough to kind of counteract those really high prices and those really high interest rates. So this is I a handle. great strategy, great solution for someone who's struggling to get cash flow and, you know, for doing a little bit more work. I don't think you're you're uh, you're up all night doing your management of your of your student rentals, but uh, it's probably a little bit more than just a regular property management job, but well, not yeah, that much Up more. until
1: last month. I was still working my pharmacist job at uh, 32 hours. So yeah, I was all on the
0: side. Yeah, yeah. How? Like, what do you think you put in like, on average for a typical property? Like, what's a typical property management month look like for you? In terms yeah, of at just the time? beginning,
1: it depends if it's like at the beginning or later on, right? Yeah. But at the beginning, probably three or four hours a week or so. Um, just, you know, to go through that whole process. But once you have your tenants in and everything, less than two hours a week. Yeah. Average. Yeah. And, and
0: yeah. so you're really you're trading a little bit of time for a lot more cash flow on your rental property. And so you could almost say, look, you know, exactly. cash flow on this property, if I wasn't doing this, would have been whatever it is, $200 a month. But because I'm doing this little extra work, now I'm making an extra 1000 or $1,500 a month in, yeah. in cash flow on this. And you divide that by the number of extra hours you work and you're still making, you know, whatever it is, 200 bucks an hour. Yeah, I'm just making the numbers return on
1: time invested is insane for, yeah. for you know, leveraged uh, assets, right? So think about this way if you get like four of these properties, they're Cash flow in two thousand twenty five hundred a month. You could be made. You you. I mean, this is like not not everyone, right? It'll depend on your market. Yeah. I got a caveat, but like, you know, you could you could very well buy four properties, uh, making eight thousand to ten thousand a month in cash flow. And how much time would you put in? Let's say it's two hours per property times four properties. You're paying. You're you're putting in eight hours a week. You know, one workday to
0: make ten thousand a month. Yep. Right. I mean, it's like not bad at all (laughs) i mean you, you do that you acquire your four properties especially if you do something where you you live in the property you don't even have to have the roommates the first year you live in it you literally can live in the property just yourself um, you know, yeah. not rented out at all. Then when you move out at the end of the year, then you convert it to a student rental and you put, you know, 5% down each time you acquire one of these with a conventional loan or maybe even nothing down to a USDA or VA loan or three and a half percent down FHA in the first one. And then you got yeah. these, you know, for 20% down on one property. If you do it over four years where you put 5% down each time and move into the property, live there for a year and then convert it to a rental for the amount of you had for one down payment on one rental property. Now you acquired four of these and you got $8,000 a month in cash flow. I mean, if you can do the two thousand dollars from the rentals and uh and you're done. I mean, it's a four year man. process you acquire it all and you're ready to go with your student rental empire and you do a little part time until you get a little bit more cash. with any you hire the property manager. You hire like a VA or two to kind of uh oversee the whole the whole business for you, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, That's work it. on that team, right? So it's <laughs> only those three things, right? Get the get the math done uh down, uh, get the capital problem solved and then get the team problem solved or. The system slash team
0: problem. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I really do appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been great having you. Uh, Thanks so much. Bye bye for now. Thanks, James. With home prices up,
1: mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Sugarland is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals.
0: see the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities